Welcome to NTD Evening News. Our top story tonight, Senator Tommy Tuberville is dropping his hold on military promotions. It ends a 10-month standoff over a Pentagon abortion policy. Melina Weisskopf has more on why the Alabama senator is backing down. Another Republican not running for re-election in 2024. Congressman Patrick McHenry served as House Speaker pro tem this fall. Should the U.S. border come before Ukraine? House Speaker Mike Johnson clashing with the White House over funding priorities. The questions persist. Where's your tax money going next? Iris Tao reports. Israel Defense Forces are tightening their grip on the Gaza Strip, reporting the most intense day of fighting in weeks. And they are not only battling Hamas terrorists, but another terrorist group as well. Jason Perry has the update. A house explosion shakes a peaceful neighborhood just miles from the nation's capital. What we know about the man who lived there and is now presumed dead, Sam Wong at the scene. If you reinvest your profits, should you be taxed on them? A Supreme Court case could upend the current tax code and prevent a wealth tax. This is NTD Evening News, live from our NTD Global Headquarters in New York City. Here is Tiffany Meyer. Good evening and thank you for joining us tonight. Military promotions are back on. Senator Tommy Tuberville is backing off of his fight with the Pentagon over its abortion policy. Around 400 nominees will be able to advance now that he is no longer halting the process. NTD's Melina Weiskup reports from the Capitol. This comes as Senator Tuberville was facing mounting pressure from his Senate Republican colleagues for him to lift that hold on the military nominations and as Senate Democrats were on the verge of taking a vote to temporarily change the rules to simply disregard his military holds and simply advance the 450 that he has been blocking. We didn't get what we wanted. We didn't get the fight for it to leave it in the Senate and so just unfortunate the American people didn't get a voice. And he says even though he didn't get those changes that he was looking for, he says at the very least he thinks he opened some eyes. Now keep in mind, even though Tuberville did lift the holds on the vast majority of those military nominees, there are still a few that will be affected because he is keeping a hold on the top four-star general nominees, and that would impact around 11 people. Melina, over in the House, Republicans are gearing up for an official impeachment inquiry before the House. Today, the three committee chairs leading the investigation efforts held another closed-door hearing with IRS whistleblowers. What came out of that? The three committee chairmen who are responsible for looking into the Biden family's foreign business deals have their hands on new documents that they say proves that the DOJ actually blocked these senior IRS investigators from asking about President Biden's potential involvement in his son's foreign business deals. Here's what one of those whistleblowers had to say shortly after leaving that hours-long closed-door testimony. Hunter and his associates provided access for wealthy, wealthy foreign individuals located in Ukraine, Romania, and China in exchange for money to enrich a well-known political family. At the end of the day, it appears that the Department of Justice attempted to sweep everything under the rug. 
Now, this argument that the DOJ is stonewalling the investigation into whether or not President Biden had involvement in his son's business deals is crucial because it's along the lines of the argument that House Republicans are using to warrant why they need to authorize this impeachment inquiry into President Biden so that they can get the records that they need to further investigate. Although the White House has pushed back on this, saying that they have complied. They've provided thousands of pages of documents from the Treasury Department, but Speaker Mike Johnson today says otherwise, saying that the White House is actually preventing witness testimony from individuals who had been subpoenaed by Congress, as well as refusing to hand over documents from the National Archives. Here's Johnson. And the House has no choice if it's going to follow its constitutional responsibility to formally adopt an impeachment inquiry on the floor so that when the subpoenas are challenged in court, we'll be at the apex of our constitutional authority. This vote is not a vote to impeach President Biden. And Speaker Johnson says that next week the House will be voting on whether or not to authorize this impeachment inquiry into President Biden. And he says he's confident that in their slim majority they have the votes to do so. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Another member of Congress not running again in 2024, and this time a powerful Republican. Congressman Patrick McHenry will not see re-election. Re the Republican from North Carolina will finish out his term. McHenry is a notable figure in the GOP. After serving as Speaker Pro Tempore this fall, he's an ally of former Speaker Kevin McCarthy and chair of the Financial Services Committee. House Speaker Mike Johnson insisting on an overhaul of border policy as the White House pleads with Congress for more Ukraine money. NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao has more. House Speaker Mike Johnson is staying firm in his letter to the White House on Tuesday, insisting that any additional aid to Ukraine is, quote, dependent upon enactment of transformative change to our nation's border security laws. He's also asking the White House questions such as, what is the ultimate end game for the United States in Ukraine and how exactly was taxpayer money spent in Ukraine? Johnson's strong worded response comes after the White House on Monday urged lawmakers to pass additional aid to Ukraine saying that a current aid allocated to Ukraine is already running out. The administration also invited Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky to talk to lawmakers on Tuesday virtually about the urgent need for more aid. Zelensky was not able to make it but sent his delegates and talked to lawmakers. But some Senate Republicans still after the meeting told us that they still think that the border is a higher priority than Ukraine. Watch. There's support for Ukraine, but there has to be security of our border. Yesterday, over 10,000 people came into this country. Today, another 10,000. This is a rate of 3.7 million a year. We have to stop that. Meanwhile, some Senate Democrats echoing the White House's message that if we don't send more aid to Ukraine, it's going to hurt democracy. Watch. And the historic consequences of abandoning Ukraine at this moment in time would haunt this country for decades. I mean, who would ever trust our alliances again? The United States has already sent well over $100 billion to Ukraine. While some Republicans are questioning why we're not spending that money at home, including on our own border, Senate Democrats are pushing ahead with a test vote on Wednesday on whether or not to approve President Biden's $100 billion emergency funding package, which includes some $60 billion additional aid for Ukraine. Back to you. 
Israel is now contending with another terrorist group in the Gaza Strip, the Islamic Jihad. Israeli Defense Forces say today was the most intense day of fighting in five weeks. NTD's Jason Perry has the report and also offers some insight into why some civilians are not evacuating the battle zones. Israel Defense Forces have completely surrounded the Jabalia camp in the northern Gaza Strip. On Tuesday, the IDF reported raiding a Hamas internal security forces command and control center in Jabalia. IDF troops also located and destroyed rockets found in a garden at a residence in the area. The IDF already has control of the north and has repeatedly asked residents to evacuate to the south. But it may be easier said than done, as Hamas, on the other hand, has told residents to ignore Israel's orders to evacuate their homes. And even more so, in October, mosques in Gaza broadcasted the message, hold on to your homes, hold on to your land. Israel's chief of the general staff gave an update. Those who thought that the IDF would not know how to renew the fighting after the pause were mistaken, and Hamas is already feeling this. Many Hamas operatives, including senior commanders, have been eliminated in recent days. The IDF is also continuing its operations in southern Gaza. On Tuesday, the IDF reported surrounding Gaza's second largest city, Khan Yunus, in the south and they are continuing to move inwards, battling terrorists along the way. Israeli forces are not only fighting Hamas there, but also the Islamic Jihad, another terrorist group operating in the Gaza Strip. That group released a video on Tuesday showing terrorists firing machine guns and carrying rocket launchers. Also on Tuesday, residents were seen leaving this area to go further south to Rafah, near the Egyptian border. Then they brought us to Khan Yunus, where they said it would be safe. And now from Khan Yunus to Rafah, where they said it would be safe. Safety can only be provided by God, and whatever God has willed will happen. Department of State spokesperson Matthew Miller said this about the IDF's recent operations in the south. Number one, making clear to Israel that... We do not want to see this campaign conducted in the South the way it has been conducted in the North. We are four or five days into this campaign in the South. It's just started again after the pause. It's too early to make, I think, overall assessments about how it's going. But certainly I know for civilians on the, on the ground, conditions are incredibly difficult. Miller also said that Israel is not allowing enough humanitarian aid, including fuel, to enter the Gaza Strip. And he added that the U.S. has made this clear to Israel and is engaging with them to address the human suffering. Jason Perry, NTD News. A man is presumed dead after a massive explosion shook a peaceful neighborhood just miles from the nation's capital. This after the suspect reportedly fired a gun from inside his home as police attempted to execute a search warrant. NTD's Sam Wong reports. We're here in Arlington, Virginia, right at the cross street of Ace Road and North Buchanan. And this is about as close as we can get to where the explosion took place. At the time of this recording, as you can see, police are still on active duty. So I spoke to a resident nearby to bring us back to what she heard and saw last night. So me and my roommate were kind of trying to figure out what was going on because I said we thought it was in our own house. And the fire was almost as tall as those trees. I mean, just a complete engulfment of flames. Last night, 
debris and wreckage raining down on a peaceful cul-de-sac after a massive blast leveled this Arlington duplex. Footage shows plums of smoke and flame visible from miles away. According to the preliminary investigation, it all started with a 911 call, saying that the suspect was shooting a flare gun several dozen times from inside his home into the surrounding neighborhood. Police tried to make contact with the suspect through loudspeakers, but he didn't respond. Just as officers attempted to execute a search warrant, they heard what's believed to be several gunshots from inside the house. Then the explosion took place. The suspect is identified as 56-year-old James Yu, and he is presumed to be deceased. Authorities said no one else was hurt except for three officers who received minor injuries. We are aware of concerning social media posts allegedly made by the suspect, and these will be reviewed as part of the ongoing criminal investigation. Yu has a history of posting anti-government statements online. One of his neighbors said that the suspect has been staying behind closed door for years. Reporting from Arlington, Virginia, Sam Wong, NTD News. When a company reinvests its profits, should its investors be taxed? A case pending before the U.S. Supreme Court could have sweeping ramifications for the tax code and how much people should pay. The case centers on Charles and Kathleen Moore, who were investors in an India-based company. They were hit with a one-time $15,000 tax bill because of a provision in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. The Moores argue they shouldn't be taxed because the company's profits were reinvested and they never received any income from it. A decision in their favor would eliminate a 2017 tax provision, which is anticipated to bring in $340 billion. It would also prevent a type of wealth tax that's favored by some Washington Democrats. Coming up, are America's top universities biased against Israel? The heads of Harvard, MIT and the University of Pennsylvania are in D.C. today. Lawmakers probing the school's responses to anti-Semitism on campus. Arian Pazdar reports. And groups linked to Iran hack U.S. water systems and industries in multiple states. A security expert says the federal government made a huge mistake in its response. Find out more after the break here on NTD News. Welcome back. Anti-Semitism on U.S. college campuses in the spotlight on Capitol Hill today. Lawmakers grilling presidents of America's top universities. This as Jewish students describe how their lives have changed since the attacks by Hamas. Entity's Arian Pastar brings us more. I hear calls to gas the Jews and I am told that Hitler was right. Jewish students on Tuesday joining lawmakers for a press conference in D.C. They describe what their day-to-day -day lives have been like since the October 7th attacks by Hamas. For example, when they're on campus, on their way to class. I walk by mobs of people chanting from the river to the sea, which is a call for the destruction of the state of Israel. Most recently, we have you outnumbered and globalize the intifada. An intifada is an uprising and the last two were marked by blowing up buses and restaurants. And just a few hours after this press conference, Congresswoman Elise Stefanik confronted the president of Harvard about calls for a global intifada on her campus. 
Does that speech not call for the genocide of Jews and the elimination of Israel? When you testify that you understand that is the def definition of intifada. We embrace a commitment to free expression and give a wide berth to free expression, even of views that are objectionable, You and I both know that's offensive. not the case. You were aware that Harvard ranked dead last when it came to free speech. Stefanik went on to suggest that Harvard values free speech only when it's against Israel. Isn't it true that Harvard previously rescinded multiple offers of admissions for applicants and accepted freshmen for sharing offensive memes, uh, racist statements, sometimes as young as 16 years old? The school's president responded by saying that such incidents took place before she assumed her current role. Now, in the end, the hearing didn't really bear much fruit. Committee members say that the presidents of the schools failed to condemn terrorism during the hearing and that they instead opted to defend open discourse on campus. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. What motivates terrorists to commit acts of terror? A French-Israeli journalist has interviewed dozens of terrorists from Islamic groups. He has some insight into what motivates terrorists and the underlying reasons for conflict in the Middle East. Let's take a look. The crisis in the Middle East is one that spans decades, even centuries the Israel-Hamas conflict being just the latest one. What does Hamas want out of the conflict with Israel? I must add that we don't only fight against occupation. Our goal is to spread Islam to all, everywhere. What do terrorist groups say Islam teaches them to motivate them to commit acts of terrorism? It's written in the Quran. When a martyr blows himself up, it's beautiful. It feels so good. He doesn't feel any pain, only pleasure. And even dead, he wants to do it again and again. I will not feel sorry for any Israeli kid, and I will not regret, even if it is a nursery full of kids. It's enough that I will be a martyr and I will go in front of God. Representing my family, 70 people, my wife, my children, my sisters, and all my friends, 70 people will go to paradise on my merit. This is a big honor for me. Pierre Rehov is a reporter and documentary filmmaker. He's covered conflicts in the Middle East for decades. He's interviewed dozens of Hamas, Islamic Jihad, and Al-Qaeda terrorists. He says the current protests supporting Palestine are products of sleeper cells that have been embedded in America and other countries for years. What we know is that all those uh, parades in America and other places in the world, they are not spontaneous. It was kind of organized. Those are sleep terrorist sleeping cells. They have been there for a long time. You certainly know my friend Steve Emerson, who had been covering for many, many years also. He wrote Jihad in America like 20 years ago, 25 years ago. And this is what is happening. A lot of the mosques are actually are covering within their, their walls are small organizations. I'm not talking about all the mosques, obviously, but some of the mosques are just terrorist bases. Rehov talks about who is funding Islamic terrorist propaganda around the world. Is it Iran, Russia, China? It's all of the above, and you forgot the most important, Qatar. Qatar also is involved. Qatar, Russia, China. Very good point. But more, also, you have to understand, European Union, they send millions of dollars to left-wing organizations within Israel or within the Palestinian territories. Oh, 
Rahaf pulls no punches when talking about the future of terrorism. We will not be able to stop terrorism until the moment people actually call the things for what they are. If you're looking at, if you're reading the newspapers and if you're watching a lot of mainstream media, they don't even dare calling Hamas a terror organization. Rahav remains hopeful about an end to conflict in the Middle East. My hope is that we expand the Abraham Accords to all of the region of the Saudi, of, including Saudi Arabia. And another hope is that America will wake up, and I think they are actually doing it now. The complex political and religious divide in the Middle East is long-standing. Rahaf says it's necessary to find a global government for Palestinians that is capable of accepting the existence of Israel and making peace with them. Amid the war in the Middle East, Iran-linked hacking groups also targeted Israeli-made devices in the U.S. Multiple federal agencies are warning that the hackers breached U.S. water systems and other industries. Joining us now to discuss the vulnerability of U.S. critical infrastructure, we have Tommy Waller, President and CEO of the Center for Security Policy. Tommy Waller, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Tiffany. Recently, Iran-linked groups hacked into the U.S. water systems. These were made by Israeli companies. Now, the water supply was fine, but what concerns is this hack raising in terms of our grid? Yeah, really, three main points, right? So the first is that we're at war with Iran, not by our choice. You know, 1979 is when they declared war on America. The second thing is it's warfare against both Israel and the United States, what they consider the great Satan, which is us, and the little Satan, Israel. And as you mentioned, this water hack was against an Israeli company. And the last point, Tiffany, is that unfortunately the federal government's not doing nearly enough uh, to recognize and contend with this global war, which leaves our communities really on the front line to defend themselves. I want to expand on that last point. What has been the government's response to this hack in particular? Well, Tiffany, it might surprise you uh, that in their response, they actually made a huge mistake. So the, the federal government through the Department of Homeland Security's Cyber Infrastructure Security Agency issued an alert about this attack, and they noted that it was a Unitronics uh, programmable logic you know, controller. It's essentially a computer, right, that was attacked. And it's a little bit hard to believe, and I have cyber experts that I'm in touch with that kind of can't believe it themselves, is that they actually put publicly the default password, uh, the port numbers for that default password in that system and made it public, which is something that, you know, this same cyber infrastructure security agency always says never disclose your password. So what that does is it opens up uh, really the opportunity for more people to use that same system as a vector of attack. And the cyber expert I spoke with just minutes ago said that he had just heard from two other additional water companies that they had been attacked uh, using the same Unitronics system. And Tiffany, what we have to understand is not just water. A beer brewery in Pittsburgh, uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania was attacked. These systems control everything from traffic to, to uh, pipelines. And so it's not a small deal. That is incredible. And zooming out, actually, this administration in particular has really pushed for new renewable energies or away from fossil fuels. We also see a secret deal to remove some hydropower dams. And with the also push for electric vehicles, that's going to put a strain on the electric grid. Can the U.S. sustain itself this way with these power sources that we have? 
Tiffany, what the Biden administration is doing is not sustainable. In fact, it used to be that we would look at threats to the U.S. electric grid, uh, you know, by Mother Nature. What can Mother Nature do? What can adversary nations do? We actually have now the threat of our own government policies potentially resulting in blackouts because we deliberately shut down fossil fuel generators, coal plants, while at the same time trying to attach tons of new you know, electric vehicles, for example, to a grid that doesn't have enough power. This is self-induced, and that's exactly what the Biden administration is doing. On that note, there is a rather curious case coming out of this administration where the Biden administration recently entered a secret deal to remove four lower Snake River dams. That's over concerns that this would hurt the salmon population. Now, this would cost billions just to remove them, and they're also trying to come up with ways to move goods instead of on barges in trucks, which would increase CO2 emissions, which is causing some controversy there. How does this fit into this administration's push for green energy? How do we read this? You know, Tiffany, it's difficult to read this administration's actions toward any manner of our security in a way that is really conducive to us maintaining that security. Whether it's energy, whether it's food, you know, what you just shared with me about protecting the salmon, how about thinking about protecting the American people, right? Whether it's securing the border or not having a war on our own farmers uh, and allowing adversary nations like China to purchase farmland in every single respect. It appears that the Biden administration has sided with adversaries and not with the American people. And given the concerns here, especially as you mentioned with blackouts, how do we mitigate that risk? Well, ultimately what we have to recognize is that we, the American people, it's gonna be up to us in our communities and our states. If the federal government is willfully failing, it's gonna be up to us to secure that infrastructure and to be prepared, right? The 6,000 plus citizens in Pennsylvania whose water system was attacked, thank goodness at the local level, they had the ability to operate it manually, right? And so the other thing is how many of those people could have really you know, gone without their tap water for any amount of time? Just like the attacks on the grid in North Carolina last December, when lights went out instantly. What we need to be prepared for as the American people is the fact that this war is global. It's on our soil right now, and it's being waged against us whether we like it or, or not. And if the federal government continues to fail, we personally need to be more prepared from the bottom up. A lot at stake here for sure. Tommy Waller, thank you so much for your time. Yes, ma'am, thanks for having me on. Four candidates have qualified for the fourth GOP presidential primary debate set for tomorrow night. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy, and former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie will face off in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Former President Trump will hold a campaign fundraiser that night. Six weeks remain until the Iowa caucuses open the 2024 GOP nomination calendar. The Republican National Committee hasn't announced if it will host any more debates. And tune in tomorrow at 10 p.m. Eastern for our exclusive post-debate coverage on NTD News. Gain insights, analysis, and a comprehensive review of the debate. Don't miss out on the in-depth perspectives. Coming up, police are overwhelmed by the record number of illegal immigrants entering the country. We listen to their stories. California, once known for its gold, now a lithium white gold mine is creating an opportunity for new riches. And who steals a Christmas tree? Surveillance footage shows how this real-life Grinch got away with it. 
More in a moment here on NTD News. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some today's top headlines. The Israeli military reported surrounding Gaza's second largest city, Yunis, in the south. They told residents to leave the area and go further south to Rafah, near the border with Egypt. The Biden administration urged Congress to approve more aid for Ukraine. House Speaker Mike Johnson insisted that such aid is dependent on an overhaul of border policy. Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville lifted his hold on most military nominations and promotions, but said he's still blocking the promotions of 11 four-star generals. Republican Congressman Patrick McHenry of North Carolina announced he's not running for re-election in 2024. He served as temporary speaker this fall. A massive explosion rocked a neighborhood in Arlington, Virginia, just miles from the nation's capital. The suspect, who is presumed dead, was reportedly shooting a gun as police executed a search warrant. The record number of illegal immigrants is straining law enforcement. Authorities say the surge in immigrant crime and the diversion of resources needed for emergency management are putting Americans in danger. NTD's Virginia Gibson has more. Burglaries of residential and commercial properties have been done by uh, migrants who came here through the current migrant policy. Uh, they've come here owing the cartels a great deal of money uh, to transport them over the border. And uh, if they don't pay that money, I've been told that uh, their families would be seriously harmed, if not killed. A record number of illegal immigrants is straining law enforcement. The House Committee on Homeland Security heard testimony from emergency management officials who are dealing with the crisis. Nassau County Executive Bruce Blakeman said that letting anybody stay in America who claims asylum status is untenable. He said crime has surged in Nassau County because of this. All types of criminal activity, from drug dealing, car theft, burglary, to more violent crimes. Our police officers also arrested someone who was in our country illegally for transporting over three kilos of pure fentanyl that was smuggled across the border illegally from China to Nassau County. This amount of fentanyl was enough to kill almost three million people. Sheriff David Favreau said the illegal immigrants have caused a surge in 911 calls. His officers have even been involved in high-speed car chases with them. Many times, the officers even have to rescue them. These people get trapped in the swamps, and we end up having to go out and do rescue missions. In most cases, it's volunteer staff that, that we're working with, with our EMTs and our fire services, which makes it even more difficult to come out. So it puts, it puts a strain not only on the volume of calls in taking away those emergency responders from other necessities within the community, but it also puts an additional mental health risk on the responders. In New York City, the government is spending heavily to feed and house illegal immigrants. So money is diverted away from emergency services, such as firefighting. And they have taken away the fifth firefighter in these companies. Uh, this is up. Uh, serious public safety issues. Studies have been done that show having an additional firefighter in these companies will reduce the time it takes to get water on fire 
by 50% in a, in a profession where seconds uh, matter. This adds minutes to a fire operation will absolutely cost people their lives. Witnesses at the hearing said they believe in reinstating former President Trump's remain in Mexico policy. Under this policy, migrants have to stay in Mexico while their asylum claims are processed. Right now, the illegal immigrants can stay in the U.S. Virginia Gibson, NTD News. A California lake is swimming in white gold. The Salton Sea is now one of the largest lithium brine deposits in the world, paving the way for a tech production boom and economic growth. NTD's Stephanie Sakal reports. The Salton Sea, a once neglected resort area, is poised to become a crucial source of lithium for California, according to a recent U.S. Department of Energy study. Situated in California's southern desert between Coachella and Imperial Valleys, the Salton Sea contains abundant lithium deposits, referred to as white gold. The amount can produce enough batteries to power 375 million electric vehicles. Researchers from the University of California, Berkeley, project a potential lithium production of over 3,400 kilotons in the next 30 years. This could bring significant economic opportunities to a region where 21 percent of the population lives in poverty, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. Experts have known for years about lithium in the area, but this new study represents the first government assessment into the size of lithium reserves in the Salton Sea, underscoring a unique chance to establish a domestic lithium industry. Despite facing environmental challenges such as 25% water loss over the past 25 years and pollution since its formation in 1905, the Salton Sea's lithium potential offers a dual opportunity for economic growth and environmental solutions. Stephanie Sikal, NTD News. A brazen Christmas tree thief caught on surveillance footage in a California parking lot. He calmly removed a tree from someone's car, strapped it on his own, and then just drove off. NTD's Jason Blair spoke with the victim, who was shocked when he found out the tree was gone. A couple parked and went into a jewelry store for about 15 minutes just before 5 p.m. on Friday. My wife was checking the window to see if our tree you know, our car was fine and our tree was gone. And then she said, oh, your tree's gone. Our tree's gone. I said, no, it's not. It's the couple's first Christmas together and they had just bought a tree which was strapped on top of their car. And then when I went to look, like it was like, kind of like, uh, my mind went blank. And then, you know, I felt angry and like just confused. Juarez said the jewelry store showed them the surveillance and the police were called. He said the officers unfortunately couldn't do much because the license plates were blurry and the theft was under $950. In California, if stolen items are less than $950, the crime is only considered a misdemeanor. I know like it's, it's a tree and not, but it's just like the principle to me, you know, you just don't go that low. As grinchy as the incident was, the Juarez family was still able to take a tree home for the holidays. The parking lot security company gave them some money towards a new one, and the Christmas tree farm helped out as well. The tree farm gave me a, uh, gave me a discount when I went back to tell them what happened. While the incident seems to be an anomaly, Juarez urges families to be cautious. It's hard times, I guess, but just be careful. 
The thief's car is a white Infiniti with paint chips on the rear and the hood. The driver looks to be a white male in his 30s or 40s. If anyone has any tips, please contact the San Mateo Police Department. Jason Blair, NTD News. Coming up in college sports, a surprising new rule change proposed by the NCAA. Will they allow schools to now pay their players? NTD's Dave Martin joins us to discuss when we return. Welcome back and now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, some shocking news from the NCAA today. It might allow schools to actually be able to pay their athletes. Now, does this mean these students would be regarded as employees? It doesn't sound like it. I mean, there's still a lot of questions around this, but the changes would allow these schools to pay their, their athletes for their name, image, likeness, or NIL, as other companies already do. Now, a lot of the organizations or companies that are paying them are actually uh, alumni pooling their money together. Maybe now it can be more officially done through the school as well. There's, that's still another un unclear part. Now, this would be only for those top earning schools, though. Essentially, they're going to create like a new level of Division I sports where the richer schools would kind of make their own rules regarding this. Now, who's included in that tier isn't really specified, but I would guess any school in the Power Five conferences would be included. Now, why do you think the NCAA came to this decision now after years of not allowing it? Well, I think pressure for one. I mean, there's too much money going to these conferences to be ignored. I mean, the Big Ten recently signed TV agreements with Fox, CBS, and NBC for a combined $8 billion over a seven-year period. So you'd think, you know, there's probably plenty of money to go around. Um, now, that's divided per school, but that doesn't include payouts from the NCAA for making the football playoffs. There's also payments for making basketball, and I'm sure those TV, those deals will grow as well, too. Now, I think the schools, uh, especially the coaches, just did not like the fact that this is a big part of the recruiting pr process that they did not have control over. Also, you know, there's a new NCAA president, Charlie Baker, and he's the one who introduced this legislator. Now, elsewhere in college sports, there was a hearing today on Capitol Hill regarding Title IX, which was a law passed some 50 years ago to ensure more fairness in women's school sports. What was the concern in this hearing? Well, Representative Lisa McClain made it very clear in her, her uh, opening statement. The Biden administration is planning to change the beneficiaries of this to include those males who identify as females. Now, these kind of debates usually have one side saying it's hateful to exclude those who want to compete as a different gender. The other side cites safety and fairness issues. Maybe the best argument, though, is that there are actually differences between males and females and that no amount of hormones or surgeries can revert whatever the XX and XY chromosomes are that separate the genders. Now, regarding safety issues, I actually had spoken with Peyton McNabb. Peyton McNabb, she was a high school volleyball player who was injured when a transgender player uh, a, a male, or I'm sorry, a male who identifies as female spiked the ball off her face. She suffered a concussion uh, as well as even partial paralysis. I mean, this is even why, you know, boys sports are separated by age. You can't have a teenager playing Little League Baseball for, you know, safety as well as fairness issues. On the safety note, what about privacy issues between boys and girls? Any mention about 
girls having to share a locker room with guys and how that could make them feel uncomfortable. Yeah, that was brought up today as well, too. Riley Gaines testified there today. Now, Riley Gaines is a former NCAA swimmer, All-American swimmer at the University of Kentucky. She was at the national finals last year, competed against transgender swimmer uh, Leah Thomas. Now, Thomas, uh, formerly known as Will, her ranking was 400s as a male, went to first as a female. Clearly, Gaines didn't think that was fair, didn't appreciate having to dress in the same locker room with Thomas. Now, we're going to play uh, some of what she said right here. In addition to losing out on opportunities to Thomas, we also had to share a locker room and change in front of this six foot four, fully intact, naked male. And as I've testified previously, we were not forewarned of this arrangement. We were not asked for our consent, and we did not give our consent to this exposure and to be exploited. We don't see females entering into men's sports and dominating. This is only happening one way, and with that way being males entering into women's sports and dominating. Let me be perfectly clear. A school that knowingly allows a male athlete to take a spot on a women's team or allows a male athlete to take the field in a women's game is denying a female student athletic opportunity. And that is sex-based discrimination, and it violates Title IX. Now, Biden's proposed changes to Title IX have been uh, in the works for quite a while. It's still unclear, though, when they would take effect. Well, Dave, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tiff. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.